by His grace, uh, God imparts gracious gifts to strengthen the church uh, in worship and in love and in witness. Uh, And one gift that He uses often to strengthen our worship is Gary compiling uh, songs that artistically express the, the truth of the word preached. Uh, and, and that's no different today, um, especially as it relates to what we might call the already and the not yet aspects of our redemption. Uh, you just sang, what grace that you entered our brokenness, you came in the fullness of time, how, how far we had fallen from righteousness, but not from the mercies of Christ. Your cross is our door to redemption. Your death is our fullness of life. So we look back and celebrate what God already accomplished. At the same time, you also sang, For the light beyond the darkness, when the rain of sin is done, when the storm has ceased its raging and the haven has been won, for the joy beyond the sorrow joy of the eternal year for the resurrection splendor we are waiting waiting here so in one sense redemption is already accomplished and yet in another sense redemption's fullness has yet to be realized and that's not far from the the portrait of redemption in hebrews chapter 2 he wrestles with this tension between the already and the not yet aspects of our Redemption. We are waiting for the Lord to complete His work, to bring His kingdom. But this waiting is often racked with pain. We experience brokenness and disorder. We experience suffering and injustice. We experience blows in our relationships that send us reeling. We're frightened about what's going to happen next, perhaps. Waiting for the kingdom makes perseverance difficult. Waiting seems to be making it difficult for these believers. They've grown weary of the persecution, but in the midst of waiting, God helps them to persevere by reassuring of the kingdom He already secured for them. No matter what pain we're facing, Hebrews 2 helps us persevere likewise. While we're waiting, Hebrews reassures us of the unshakable hope that we have in Jesus Christ who already rules the world to come and who died to secure our place in it. So let me read that hope. Let's read of this hope starting in verse 5. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Throughout chapter 1, we've seen this theme where the, the Son is superior to angels. He has a name more excellent than the angels. He created the angels. He tells the angels what to do. Well, verse 5 carries this further in that God subjected the world to come. He says, not to angels, but to Jesus. In what way, though, does, does verse 5 advance his argument here? What's the connection? Well, he could be offering one further reason we ought to pay much closer attention to our great salvation. And uh, so, so reason one would have been last week, right? Pay much closer attention because if you don't, judgment awaits you. Here's, here's reason number two you should pay much closer attention. God subjected the world to come to Jesus. He's further explaining why it's such a great salvation. That's certainly part of the overall thrust. But what else might have prompted this, this statement about Jesus' rule over the, the world to come? Well, I think it's verse 4. He mentions the signs and wonders and various miracles God performed, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we know that throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him, he he heals the sick and raises the dead, right? He casts out demons and he turns water into wine. Uh, He he makes the lame leap like the deer and he pours out his spirit on all God's people. He forgives sins. And according to the Old Testament, these were the signs of the age to come. These were the signs of the world to come. They were foretastes of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. The signs pointed to Jesus as the king bringing in the new world. And verse 5 takes that further. He's saying the fact that God authenticated his apostles with signs and wonders proves that God already subjected that future world to Jesus. If we want to specify uh, what the the world to come is here, uh, Hebrews later on will kind of put more skin on this. Uh, For example, in chapter 11, verse 10, it includes uh, the city that has foundations, whose whose designer and builder is God. Uh, It's in 1116, it's the better country, uh, a heavenly one. In chapter 12, verse 28, it's the kingdom that cannot be shaken. So this is talking about God's future kingdom that will one day swallow the earth. Glimpses of that kingdom come with Jesus' earthly ministry and they continue in the church. But the emphasis is that something decisive occurred in Jesus' work that the world to come is already subjected to his rule. Okay, His reign makes it a reality even if we can't see it yet fully. Now we might ask, okay, why is that significant? How is that going to help us? Well, he next develops the significance of Jesus already ruling the future world. And he does so using Psalm 8. So turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 450. Psalm 
It's the Psalm of David. And David begins and ends the psalm with the same words. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. What he's saying there is that God's glory is so great that the heavens can't even contain it. It can't contain the fullness of his glory. God's majesty is overwhelming David. He's awestruck by the Lord's imposing greatness, much like we might feel at the base of a great mountain. But what he also uh, what he also does is, what also informs his praise here of God's majesty is God's willingness to condescend to man. And so verses 2 to 8 take this unexpected turn. The, this majestic God chooses to humiliate his enemies with the praise of babies and infants. That's not what you would expect, right? But that's what he says in verse 2. After saying, you have set your glory above the heavens, verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy or to put them to rest and the avenger. So God is using the totally helpless to shame and put to rest those who think they're really strong and mighty. What's also unexpected, though, is this. Given the vastness of God's universe, God nevertheless nevertheless shows this great concern for man. Look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the, than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And then he returns, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David can't believe it. Right? This majestic God who flung the universe into existence, he created man to rule it under him. He entrusted man with this incredible responsibility to rule the created order. And if you caught the wording of verses 6 to 8, it's, it's a reflection, it, it's his own, it's, it's a reflection on, on what we learn about mankind's purpose back in Genesis 1. So why don't we go to Genesis 1 together? And I bet you can guess what page it's on in the Pew Bible. Page one. So this is, uh, if you skip down with me to verse 26 of Genesis 1, 
He says, says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And a better translation might reveal a purpose statement here. So in verse 26, let us make man in our image so that they may rule. And then we see it again in verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. You, you, you see that language back. That was what he, that's the same language he was using in Psalm 8. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and so on. So I want you to notice here, be fruitful and multiply connects back with the male and female he created them. Have dominion connects back with the, in the image of God he created them. In other words, ruling creation rightly is one way we image God. Okay, People get glimpses of God's glory, in other words, in your life, when, when we rule in ways that reflect His righteousness, that reflect His love, uh, how He orders creation, um, how He provides for His people, how He leads and protects. We might say this, God is the true and the ultimate King, but He made us, He created us to reflect His rule as lesser kings. And David celebrates this over in Psalm 8. It's how God made us. It's part of bearing God's image. It's amazing. David is just floored that he gets to participate in in, in such a grand purpose of imaging the Maker's rule on earth. This is a glory of humanity. Only there's a tension, isn't there? And the tension comes with our present experience. Psalm 8 sounds way too optimistic, doesn't it? Our experience tells us something's wrong. Something is warped here with our dominion. I mean, we see leaders abusing their authority all the time. And families are full of strife. Husbands dominate their wives. Fathers neglect their children or they rule them with an iron fist. People can't rule their tongues, James says. Instead of ruling creation, creation rules people as they turn created things into idols. People even destroy the earth itself instead of caring for it. So what do you mean, David? God put everything in subjection to man. Really? Is that really what we see? So there's this tension when you read Psalm 8. And the writer of Hebrews feels the same tension. If you go back to chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 8, he says, at present we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. And I take that to mean everything in subjection to mankind. In the original creation, God left nothing outside man's control. But we don't see that now. Why? 
Because now we see man functioning as he was cursed, not as he was created. You see, Adam forfeited dominion. He failed to rule the serpent and crush his head. And sin entered the world through this man, and we're born with the same sin nature that Adam had. Sin warps us such that our rule hardly images God's rule. And even when we try to rule creation as we ought to, our rule is tainted with mixed motives that that don't please the Lord. Moreover, we find that no matter how hard we try to subdue creation and to establish order and to to make peace, death eventually ends our lives and puts an end to all of our efforts. Cancer takes its toll, old age wears us out, and the grave eventually swallows us up. But that's not where Hebrews leaves us. Or better, that's not where the grace of God leaves us. You see, Hebrews recognizes the tension between mankind as he ought to be and our experience as mankind under the curse. And then he gives us the answer. So let's read him working through this tension onto Christ in verse 8, again of Hebrews 2. Now, in putting, the, putting everything in subjection to him, that is to mankind, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. That is, but we see another man, the man, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So what's his answer to the tension here? Right, His answer is that Jesus restores to man what Adam lost. We don't yet see everything in subjection to Him. That's the tension. And here's His answer. But we do see Him. That is, we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Now let me ask you a question just as a little aside here. How did He know to apply Psalm 8 to Jesus? Because Jesus applied it to Jesus. If you look at Matthew 21, this is after he curses the temple, and the children are praying out, are, are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, and the Pharisees want them to be quiet. And that's when Jesus quotes uh, to them. So this is Matthew 21, verse 16. Jesus quotes to them. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So the praise that God himself deserves. In Psalm 8, Jesus is saying he deserves it because he is the one who is about to shame the strong and put God's enemies to rest through His humiliation and death, through His weakness. 
he applies Psalm 8 to himself, and we find the apostles applying Psalm 8 to him to, to Jesus in the same manner, only we're getting a little more here. He raises the tension. We don't see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him crowned with glory and honor. Not with our physical eyes yet. But with the eyes of of our hearts, we see Jesus as we read of Him in, in the Word of God. We do see Jesus reigning over the world to come at God's right hand. He's already seated there. Why did God seat Him there and nobody else? Why did God seat Jesus there and nobody else? Well, the text says, because of the death He suffered. He died a death that nobody else could die. God the Father entrusted the Son with a mission. And rather than exercising His right to be seen as the glorious one, He took the position of a man. He took the position that was, for a little while, lower than the angel's. Why would this God, who sets His glory above the heavens, according to Psalm 8, why would this God choose a position lower than the angels and become man? Well, verse 9 tells us that He might taste death for everyone. You see, you can't participate in the world to come if death is still in your bones. And if you've got death in your bones, that means you've got a sin problem. You see, death isn't the natural end to life among some fixed chain of events like our evolutionist neighbors might suggest. Death is God's judgment against sin. Death is a curse that rests on humanity and nobody can beat it except one man, the man, Jesus Christ. You see, he is the new and greater Adam. He obeyed where the first Adam failed. And then he entered death not due to his own sins. He entered death for our sins. He entered death for our sake. He endured the consequences that we deserve for our sins. That's what verse 9 means when it speaks of God sending His Son to taste death for everyone or on their behalf. Now some have said everyone here could mean everything, the whole cosmos. Others uh, that it means everyone without exception, but all we need to do is keep reading. And he identifies everyone for us. It's the many sons that He's bringing to glory in verse 10. It's the children of God in verse 13. It's not the angels, He says in verse 16. It's the offspring of Abraham. Jesus tasted death for them. All of them. Without distinction from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. All the multitudes that we see before the heavenly uh, hosts in Revelation praising the Lamb. 
He suffered for our sins, beloved, unto death to secure our place in glory, to secure our place in the world to come. Humiliation, propitiation, and exaltation. That's the pattern we see here. And that's God's answer to the tension. That's the only hope for humanity. Jesus is the new and greater Adam. He obeys where Adam failed. He dies to remove Adam's sin from you. He restores to man what Adam lost. So for the Christian, Jesus is our representative head. He is our forerunner. He's the only one crowned with glory and honor. He's the only king able to subdue all things beneath his feet. And he secures our place in the world to come. He represents the new humanity already that will one day inhabit the new world with him. And that is good news. It's good news. It's not good news if you reject Jesus' cross. It's not good news if you reject Jesus' kingship. It's not good news if you reject Jesus as the new Adam. For all who reject Jesus, you will not participate in the world to come. You will not belong to Jesus' kingdom. You will be cast outside of that kingdom. And the Bible says that your experience will only be death on top of death on top of death. It's an eternal death filled with only punishment and no mercy. That's why he doesn't want them to abandon this great salvation back in verse 3. With Jesus' great salvation, you gain the world to come. So he's saying, don't let go of him. Don't neglect those riches. Don't neglect that glory that comes with knowing Christ. When you belong to Jesus, you get the new world order with Him. So friends, give your lives to Jesus and never let Him go. For all who do, give their lives to Jesus. You will gain the world to come and all its blessings in the presence of God. But more than that, did you know that even now you will be changed? Even now, you will be changed. Jesus' rule over the world to come isn't just hope for the future. It's power to live rightly in the here and now. You see, Hebrews 2 is part of a much bigger theme that we see throughout the New Testament. For example, did you know that those in Christ can rule now as they were created to rule? Those in Christ can rule as they were made to rule. God raised Jesus from the dead to renew God's image in us. That's why he says in in Romans 8 that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Or in 2 Corinthians 3, he says that by beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image into the the man's image who's ruling over the world to come. We're being transformed into His image as we look to His glory. 
That's right now happening when you look to His glory. So when you look to Jesus' glory, you start to rule in the here and now as Jesus would rule. I want you to get this. Because when you get this, you're going to see it everywhere when you read the gospel. So Ephesians 2 says that you were once dead, but God made you alive with Christ. And what's the rest of Ephesians 2 says? That you were seated with Him in the heavenly places. That's where He rules. You were seated in, you were seated with Him in the heavenly places. So in some real sense, you're already seated with Christ in the world to come. And that means, he goes on to say, that we can now do the good works that He prepared beforehand for us to do. You can now rule as you were made to rule. Yes, that rule will be incomplete until Jesus returns, but that reign has already begun in some sense for those in Christ. So we're seated with Him in the heavenly places. Dominion is restored. Revelation 1 calls us a kingdom of priests already. We're already that in Christ, and it affects everything. Ruling with Christ means that you're not a helpless victim of Satan's temptation. You don't have to obey the snake when he offers you false intimacy or more fame for your ego or bitterness over circumstances or makes you fearful of death. Why? Because you are seated with him in the heavenly places. His lies, the the enemy's lies, do not rule you anymore. Jesus' truth does. Ruling with Christ means that your fleshly passions don't don't rule you anymore. Rather, you rule them. We get an example of this when Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. How can Paul say that? Sex... Food, drink, money, nicotine, caffeine, Facebook, iPhone notifications, work, studies, sports, man-made political ideologies. I will not be dominated by anything. Why? Because we now rule with Christ. Those things can't rule us anymore. We must rule them, and we can because the Christian is seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Ruling with Christ means that that you also take up your cross. Right? What sort of king was Jesus? What sort of man was he? He was one that served the good of his people by giving himself for them. He gladly took up sacrificial responsibility. Ruling well isn't about making demands on your wife. Always getting your way. Keeping people in their place. Pushing your weight around. Manipulating the situations to your advantage. It's about being the first to offer yourself for their joy. Nobody questioned Jesus' authority when He robed himself in a towel and started washing the disciples' feet. Nobody questioned who was in charge in that moment. 
There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy. King Loon, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, of Arkenland summarizes kingship like this. He says, this is what it means to be a king. To be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. Why does that resonate? Because God made us to be like that. First into battle, proactive, taking initiative, protecting the weak, last one out, swinging the sword, making sure the people are safe, and making that your joy in life. Ruling like Christ also affects relationships in the church. Right? We saw this this morning in Discipleship Hour. Trevor was pointing out how, how Paul told Titus to remain there in, in the city and put what remained into order. That's an outworking of this rule in Christ in the church. Dominion has been restored in Christ, and, all, and in Christ, he can put what remained into order. Or when Paul gets frustrated with the Corinthians, right? They're taking each other to court and he's just baffled uh, by it all because they're this, these, are the, these are the same people who are going to judge angels one day. Goodness gracious, he says. Well, he doesn't actually say that. I said that. But he's like, you guys are going to judge angels and you can't get over your petty disputes in the church. In other words, there's enough wisdom to rule angels in heaven and you can't get your stuff straight on earth. How about that? Does that give you a different perspective? Like the more we're conformed in the image of Christ, the more we will rule like Christ. The more we will image God's rule in our relationships with others. And when we do, you know what we become as a church? We become a reflection of the world to come. We become a concrete, earthly picture that the world can look at and go, that's what the kingdom of God's going to look like. You see, the rest of the world is enslaved to the old world order in Adam. They are still subdued by Adam's sin. But we are supposed to be a testimony to the world that Jesus Christ has broke the power of sin in our lives. We are supposed to be a reflection of the world to come where sin doesn't reign anymore. The world to come where our Savior already rules with resurrection power. Our goal right now isn't to make this world our home. Our goal right now is not to make America our home. It is to live in ways that reflect the world to come. That world is our hope. This world is not our hope. It's on its way out. And that's why Hebrews 13 says that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
We're experiencing a lot of pain, beloved. Friday morning, I was praying through the, the, the membership role, the little sections I have marked out for each day. And I just started listing the various pains our body has suffered recently or is suffering currently. Parents doing what they can, but aching over unruly children. Doctors unable to determine what's wrong, unable to subdue certain illnesses. A beloved sister taken from her family by cancer. A dad in the hospital growing weaker by the day. Marriages disordered by wayward spouses or that just lack good communication to get somewhere positive. Mistakes have led to long-term consequences that are scary. You're trying to lead the family well, but the unforeseen circumstances keep frustrating your plans. You strive to educate students at school, but their difficult home situations seemingly undermine all of your efforts. A corrupt boss makes navigating decisions at work super stressful. Injustice saddens you in society and you doubt that things will ever get any better. People just won't listen to each other. Despite efforts to point them out, false ideas keep spreading and leaders rule in foolish ways that grieve you. You've done all you can to establish your family, raise your children peacefully, but new circumstances that are outside your control are starting to threaten your family's peace. God, we need this word today. That at the present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to man. We feel that. It's killing us over here. Right? You're dying inside. Give me something to stand on. And here it is. We do see Him. And He's there, beloved. Jesus Christ is reigning over the world to come. He's already there. His reign is more real than the person sitting next to you. As Wes put it some time ago, when he preached uh, on Psalm 8, he said, your hope is not found in the circumstances of this world. It's found in the world to come. In a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The blessings of this life can be good gifts that God gives us to enjoy, but they're not a secure enough investment to set your hopes on. And they're not worth enough to cling to too tightly. The most solid investment you can make, he says, the richest treasure you can gain is in knowing the humble majesty of God revealed in Jesus Christ. His kingdom is certain, beloved. It's not yet fully realized here and now, but the king is already reigning over it. And when he brings its fullness, Revelation describes it this way. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself 
will be with him as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. May that be our hope in the days ahead. May that become our prayer in the midst of pain. And may that become our celebration as we come to the Lord's Supper together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.